Welcome to Ask an Austrian, Episode 2, presented by the Mises Caucus. I'm Murray Sabrin, Professor of Finance in the Annisfield School of Business at Ramapo College of New Jersey. I'm also founder of the Sabrin Center for Free Enterprise, where we bring in guest speakers, Austrian economists, and others to debate the great uh, issues of our time. I'm also the author of a brand new book, Why the Federal Reserve Sucks. It causes inflation, recessions, bubbles, and enriches the 1%. On my blog, murraysabrin.com, you can see not only the front cover in detail, but the back cover, which has a great endorsement by former Congressman and presidential candidate Ron Paul. I'm very happy that Ron gave me this endorsement. I've known the Congressman since the 1980s when we first met in Washington, D.C. at a conference, and I've been a longtime supporter in his political campaigns, and uh, he just gave this book a wonderful endorsement. Also on the blog, you can listen to two podcasts I recently did with Frank Morano. Frank is the executive producer of Joe Piscopo's radio show, which is heard on 970 The Answer in uh, New York City. And Tom Woods, we did a wonderful podcast the other day, uh, episode 1480. So uh, please go to murraysabrin.com and you can hear both podcasts, see the uh, covers of the book, uh, link to the uh, Amazon page where you can buy the book, and you can read my 1976 letter to the New York Times where I explain the Austrian theory, believe it or not, of how the Fed inflates and causes booms and busts. So please go to murraysabrin.com. You'll get all that good information. Well, today we have a lot of great questions from you uh, out there, libertarians and Austrians around the country, and so I'm going to get to as many questions as possible in the time we have today. And hopefully, if the, some of the questions are not answered, they'll be available on the next episode. So let's get right to the first question. And the first question is by Jason Kelly, who asks, in the theory of money and credit, Mises emphasized that money is not a measure of value or price or a price index. He called these ideas entirely fallacious and unscientific. What did he mean and how does this principle fit with the concept of economic calculation as laid out in Mises' famous demolition of socialism? Well, that question alone could take us an hour. But let me give you a brief example. Let's say we have an economy with five products, eggs, chicken, apples, lettuce, and bread, and they each have a price of $1. Let's say a year from now, we look at these same items, and the prices are varied. Some are a little bit more than a dollar, some are a bit less than a dollar, and so that would probably indicate changes in supply and demand for those individual products. So there's no big deal about them. But what if all the prices go up in a year? Well, then the most probable logical answer is that there's been more money in the system, and therefore that's going to drive up the prices in our little economy of eggs, chicken, apples, lettuce, and bread. So when we see virtually all prices go up, it means that the monetary authorities, if there is a monetary authority, has pumped money into the system, driving prices up. Now, in a free market economy with sound money, what should happen over time? Prices should come down. As there's more productivity, as there's greater output, prices will come down. And we've seen that in our inflationary economy for the last 30 years, as a lot of items have come down, like HDTVs, uh, computers, a whole bunch of items have come down, uh, uh, laser, laser eye surgery. If those of you who have had that, you've seen prices come down for that over the years. 
So when we talk about prices, there's no one price level. Bureau of Labor Statistics tries to do this in compiling prices every month, and they do a pretty good job. But uh, I wrote an article many years ago, which I'm going to update uh, very soon, about how to have a realistic price index. And I'll give you a hint. It's basically looking at items like these, which are perishable items. You buy, we buy them on a regular basis. And then we have what we can call consumer capital goods items, items that we buy infrequently, like an automobile, like a computer, like a house. Rent would be part of this. Uh, rent is something that uh, people who are renters pay every month, utilities we pay every month. So I think we need to uh, disaggregate the price index that is now being compiled by the BLS and come up with a more realistic approach to what, how consumers spend their money. Remember, this is supposed to be a fixed basket of goods, so we can see exactly the, the price pressures over time. So stay tuned. I'll, I'll get to that hopefully in the next uh, few months, because right now I'm, I'm working on another book. And so the second part of the question is, what about calculation? Well, money we know is very important. That's why teaching finance, we go over income statements and balance sheets. Because entrepreneurs need to know what their costs are, those are their expenses, and what their revenue is or will be. And so you need prices to reflect the supply-demand situation in uh, the sector of the economy in which the producer, the entrepreneur, is uh, working in. So prices are really the essence of how a market economy works in terms of adjusting supply and demand. For example... When there's a drought in, uh, in, in Florida or something like that, we know that the price of oranges will go up. Same thing if there's a problem with uh, the coffee crop in Brazil. That's not inflationary. That's just a price fluctuation based upon natural conditions, if you will, or economic conditions. I remember a few years ago, there was a whole hugable about um, wheat and uh, grain products. So what happened? The demand for Panera products, which has a lot of uh, bread-based products, uh, their stock went down because people were shifting out of uh, grains and wheat products into other products. So when we see consumers shifting their preferences, that will affect specific prices, but not all prices in general. So thank you, um, uh, J Jason Kelly, for that question. And uh, you can read more about that in um, Macy's great book, Socialism. He has a whole discussion about economic calculation. Uh, the next question comes from Jamie Martin. Very important question these days. So the IMF and the Fed are creating massive economic bubbles. What happens to the majority of the world that has been raised out of abject poverty from primarily first world intervention and funds? Well, the assumption there is that um, international welfare is what's going to help countries and people around the world. Well, I, I don't think Austrians approve of that or support that notion. What's going to help countries and people around the world is very simple. It's investment. Investment is the key that will create the conditions for production, and production will then provide revenue for entrepreneurs, and they can expand production. This is the market approach to getting out of poverty. And the perfect example of that is the United States in the 18th and 19th centuries. What happened? Foreign capital came to the United States because they saw the vast opportunities in America, and they helped build the railroads, the canals, and other infrastructure, helped uh, uh, do mining forestry, the basic industries that are the foundation of the U.S. economy back in the 18th and 19th and early 20th century, uh, iron and steel, coal, uh, industries like that. So what a country needs is 
investment, not only domestically, but internationally, because that's where the great opportunities are when you have countries with resources, which are the African countries primarily, and who's going there? The Chinese are going there because they see the opportunities as well. So we don't need the IMF, we don't need the World Bank, uh, which is basically a crony capitalist operation. So if we allow the market to work, poverty will be reduced all over the world. And we've seen that the last 100 years. Look what living conditions were like 100 years ago around the world, and look where they are today. It is astonishing when you go country by country how many people have been lifted out of poverty, not by government spending and, uh, and regulation, but just the opposite, by free enterprise. So that's why I'm a proponent of free enterprise, have been for more than five decades, and I'm trying to promote this as much as possible through my writings and uh, speeches and uh, books. So uh, we got to keep the uh, ideas going that free enterprise is the way to lift people out of poverty. So thank you, Jamie, for that question. Question three is from uh, Joshua Byers, who asked the question, assuming it doesn't, why does protectionism not benefit the protected in nation's industrial base? Well, protectionism is a form of crony capitalism. This has been going on in America for nearly 200 years, first with the iron manufacturers in Pennsylvania that uh, Murray Rothbard writes about in his uh, collection of essays on uh, the history of money and banking in, in the United States. Protectionism is basically an indirect tax. It's a tax by the government to prevent people from buying goods and services overseas. The, the most recent example we had, well, not so recent for those of us that are a little bit older than uh, some of the people watching, is in the early 1980s when Ronald Reagan was elected president and the automobile industry in the United States was hurting because of the uh, big recession we had from 79 to 82. Even though the government considers it two recessions, I think it's one big recession from 1979 to 92. And the automobile companies nearly went under. Chrysler got a government bailout. Um, uh, GM was in trouble, Ford was in trouble. And so what did the Reagan administration do? Remember, this was supposedly a free market administration. Well, they imposed quotas on Japanese cars. And so what happened? The Japanese car companies said, okay, we can't sell our $7,000 Nissans, uh, or Datsuns as they were called back then, or Toyotas or uh, uh, Hondas. So we'll put equipment on the car that were optional and made them standard. So now that $7,000 car became an $8,000 car or a $9,000 car. So if American consumers wanted a, a Japanese car, they had to pay a lot more, even though they may have not wanted those uh, optional items. And that allowed American car companies to be, quote, more competitive. And uh, basically, this was a crony deal between the uh, U.S. auto companies and the uh, Reagan administration. There are numerous instances of how crony capitalists go to Washington, try to get protection for their industry, for their particular company. And this is wrong because what it does, it lowers living standards for the average working family. And it's it's a stealth tax. And there's an enormous opportunity cost. One of the themes of all the questions here are opportunity costs. Whenever the government imposes its will on the economy, there's an opportunity cost foregone. So government spending, taxation, they're all opportunity costs because they make people less wealthy less prosperous. So we'll go over that in some of the other questions as well. So thank you, uh, Joshua, for that question. Uh, the next question comes from uh, Jonathan Gress-Wright. Uh, this is an interesting question because it has to do with contemporary business cycles. 
He asked the question, a lot of people are bullish about the current economy, including many libertarians. See, for example, the recent interview with Kevin O'Leary on the Reason podcast. Are they right or are there reasons to anticipate another crash soon? Well, I pulled, I just printed out a wonderful chart of the S&P 500. And you can see the dot-com bubble, the gray areas are the, uh, are the recessions. And we see the stock market peaked right before the dot-com bubble. And then it peaked before the housing bubble. And look where we are now. We've had a huge run-up in stock prices. You can see we're up more than four times since the bottom in March 2009. So the question is, and we don't know the answer to this right now, because you can see when the market peaks, it goes sideways for a while. Same thing happened here. Now the question is, is this an example of the market, a tug of war between the bulls and the bears going sideways? And the market's going to go down soon. Well, we don't know the answer. We will only know after the fact. But the point is the Fed has been pumping a lot of money in. Uh, this has been uh, demonstrated in the work of uh, Robert Wenzel at his uh, economicpolicyjournal.com website and his daily alert. The money supply has been increasing rapidly. So despite what uh, Trump thinks is happening with uh, the Fed and interest rates, the money supply is where we have to keep our eye on. That is the fuel for the, was the fuel for the dot-com bubble, the housing bubble. And now you can see, what do we call it? It's the everything bubble. The everything bubble, especially the bond market. When we have interest rates close to zero and the 10-year note is well below the three-month treasury bill, we know there's a distortion in the interest rate structure. And so we're going to keep an eye on this because uh, this looks like a bubble, the mother of all bubbles could dwarf what happened in the housing bubble. And it could match what happened from 1929 to 1932 when the stock market went down 89%. Now, the dot-com bubble dropped the NASDAQ where a lot of these stocks were traded by 82%. So we've seen something similar to the 29 crash in the dot-com bubble crash. Now, could we have another 1929? That's possible. In fact, I'll be moderating a symposium in October at Ramapo College, and Joe Salerno will be one of the panelists, and we'll be discussing what's happened the past few years and can a crash like 29 happen again. So I'll be sending that information on my Facebook page, Murray Sabrin's The Road to Liberty. So hopefully you'll come and um, watch it because it'll be streamed live, or if you're in the uh, New Jersey area, we'll be at Ramapo College on October 17th in the evening. So thank you, um, Jonathan, for that question. Uh, the next question is from um, uh, Connor Nepusino, and he has a very interesting question, a question I've always uh, gone through my head for a number of years. Let's presume by some miracle that an Austrian economist is appointed to the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, and due to external political factors, abolition of the Fed is not possible. What would central banking look like under these conditions? And what steps would an Austrian chairmanship take to switch to a more free market currency as far as possible? Okay. Well, it's clear. We have to do stop printing money, stop manipulating interest rates. That's what the Fed does. That's what Ben Bernanke pointed out in his testimony that I discuss in my book. The Fed is a big crony capitalist operation. It thinks it can manage the economy by pumping money into the banking system, taking money out of the banking system in order to create high employment and uh, economic growth. Economic growth and high employment will come from a free market economy where producers 
gather the factors of production and produce the goods that people want. It's as simple as that. That's what Austrian economists teaches us. Let the free market work. And what would an, uh, the Fed do under an Austrian economic policy? Well, stop printing money, possibly make the dollar as good as gold by defining the dollar as uh, some ounce of gold. Remember, the dollar was originally defined as one twentieth of an ounce of gold, then one thirty-fifth of an ounce of gold. Now it probably would take thousands of dollars, or let's put it this way, the dollar would probably be defined as one ten thousandth of an ounce of gold because there are so many dollars have been created in the last uh, 40 years that it would take a lot of dollars to equal one ounce of gold. So that's where we are with that. Now, the next question is from Adam. Adam asks an interesting question. In a truly free market economy, what would, would we see the ups and downs in the stock market or the market in general that we have been uh, seeing the last 100 years? And the answer is unequivocally no, because in a free market economy, we would see prices come down and the stock market would be a pretty uneventful operation. It would be reflecting true supply and demand and earnings power of companies not the destabilizing effects of monetary policy, which drives stock prices up, as we saw in this chart. Now, this is not normal. Stock prices going up and down like a roller coaster. And you can see we're on the big uptrend of the current roller coaster, the everything bubble. So we would not have this money supply influencing stock prices. So that's the thing to, that we should bear in mind, that the stock market is a reflection of earnings and Easy money. Now, there's one last question I want to get to because it's a very important question. And that comes from um, Patrick Douglas. Thank you, Patrick, for this question. We just have a minute left. Is there a derivation of the existence of time preference or is it considered a priori? Well, time preference is a reflection of people's value scales, their preferences for spending money today versus spending money tomorrow, saving today or not saving. And we know Time preference is a universal concept because there are upper-income people who spend most of their money. There are low-income people that save a good portion of their money by arranging their affairs so they can have more money for the future and have a nice uh, portfolio for the future. So time preference is something that Rothbard does a very good job in explaining in Men, Economy, and State. I think on page starts on page 319. So I think if you go to uh, Men, Economy, and State, he will give you a great deep understanding of time preference. It's as simple as people's preferences. Do you want to spend today or do you want to spend tomorrow? So high time preference is someone who wants to spend, spend, spend today. Low time preference is someone who wants to spend, but really put aside a lot of money for the future because hopefully they will uh, live a long time and they'll need money for the future. So thank you for watching episode two of Ask an Austrian Economist presented by the uh, Mises Caucus. I'm Murray Sabrin professor of finance, and please get a hold of my book. If uh, we can get tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people reading this book, make, get it on the New York Times bestseller list, we will change the narrative from should the Fed manipulating money in banking to is the Fed necessary. Thank you, and have a good day.